0: So we are continuing, we're wrapping up, we are really coming to the end of Ephesians chapter 6 and the Christian's armor, the whole armor of God. We're on lesson or sermon number 10, and we've come to the end of it. It's at the end. I thought we were going to be at the end last week, but it's going to extend on a bit further. Um, I just can't seem to wrap it up totally because there just seems to be so much more there as we... Keep pressing on. So actually, let's go ahead and just read the text and we'll stop off at uh, we'll end in verse 20. We'll be focusing today on verse 19 and 20. So let's start from verse 10, where Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So we've been looking at the reality of the spiritual warfare that we find ourselves in. I don't say we're called to it. We actually find ourselves in this situation. The day we declared our allegiance to, to Christ, we declared war on the devil. The day we became friends of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we became enemies of the devil. It's very clear. And therefore, Paul closes this whole letter to the Ephesians with this very strong exhortation. To be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And take on and put on the whole armor of God. So that you may be able to withstand and to stand in the evil day. It's a gloriously sufficient armor to make us more than conquerors. That unique word that Paul uses in Romans chapter 8. We're actually super conquerors through him who loved us. And because of this super conquering status that we have in Christ Jesus as his people, we actually see victories against the devil and these cosmic forces and these evil rulers in the heavenly places. It's shocking. It's actually quite shocking. It's quite amazing. And that's why Paul is relishing in Romans chapter 8 about the fact that nothing can separate us from God. Nothing. We are super conquerors through him who loved us. And last week, we, we've gone through all the armor, we've gone through all the pieces. I can't go through a complete review of that this morning because there's something we have to focus on today. But that's all recorded. We have all of them recorded here. So if you missed one, they're all recorded with the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, the shield of faith. We've gone through it verse by verse, week by week. Last week, we arrived to that very important concept of all prayer, all prayer. We said it's like oil in an engine. All the moving parts work because of the oil. Everything works together. Prayer is how we apply and put on the whole armor of God. It's how we apply it to ourselves, just through prayer. Paul says we're to be praying at all times with all kinds of prayer and praying in all watchfulness with all obstinate uh, persistence. Very strong word, a very unique word, only used in one place in the whole of scriptures. This very, this adamant persistence that Paul says we should have as we pray And then lastly, praying for all the saints. So all prayer at all times with all persistence for all the saints. The four all's that are clearly there. We looked at that last week. We also drew out the fact that this is a very important aspect of the ministry for which you all, we all, the body of Christ is to all be involved in. The evangelists and pastors and teachers are to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And one key work of the ministry for all Christian saints is to pray one for another. Full stop. Period. We're to be in prayer one for another. And although at the very end of last week I briefly tacked on the fact that Paul says, Don't pray for one another, only pray also for me. And I kind of drove that home and said, Pray for me, me, me too. <laughs> Uh, there's still much more to talk about, and so I wanted to to focus on that again. I felt compelled to linger here a bit longer and to draw some more of the truths and to examine more of Paul's request for a couple of reasons. First, his his actual request for prayer gives us a real practical example of how and why how we're to stand and how this whole this whole spiritual warfare that Paul's talking about. He's actually saying. Pray for me, guys, because guess what? I'm actually in an evil day right now. Things are not really, in one sense, good, quote-unquote, as we call good, for me right now. Please pray for me. That's one of the reasons. And then secondly, because in his request, Paul's prayer requests, we could say, we get a real glimpse into his life. We get a glimpse into the things that move him into the things that concern him, into his worldview, into his desires, into his goals, into his hopes, into his life, into his Lord, through what he asks prayer for. And so I'm going to begin kind of from the back and work my way forward from the end of chapter 20 and work my way backwards, kind of, so to speak, focusing on his, his position and his petition. Because as we understand his position and what he says and where he says he's at— That'll help explain to us his petition and what he's requesting prayer for. And if you read the text, it's very, very simple. I'll read the last two verses again. And also pray for me, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. There's two things he brings out about his position where he finds himself right now. I think if I was just to ask you, what do you see? I think you'd all pretty much agree. One of the things he says is, I'm an ambassador. I am in the position of and the place of an ambassador right now. And this is a pretty unique situation. An ambassador is a very... This is the the classic word for ambassador. And an ambassador is a position of prestige and honor. Even in our world today, many people in in America and many nations desire to become ambassadors. You can even go from a senator... To become an ambassador. It's not like the senator is the end-all, be-all. An ambassador is a very important, very influential, very powerful role that, that you play um, uh, in, in politics today. And in the ancient Near East was the exact same thing. In fact, in the ancient Near Eastern world, ambassadors were probably even more powerful and more influential than they are today. Because they didn't have Internet and email and telephones and phones and what? I telephones. I just dated myself. <laughs> Cell phones. <laughs> um, to, you know, where the president or the king can communicate immediately across the ocean with his ambassador what the king's desires are. No, the ambassadors were sent off with a message from the king. And he would go, and he had all authority to speak in the name of the king. It was quite a powerful position. This word ambassador is only used two times in the whole of the New Testament. So it's a pretty unique word. And Paul says, here, I am an ambassador. But it draws our attention to Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, where Paul also speaks about the fact that we are ambassadors. Not only Paul, but we, the saints. If you turn there to 2 like Corinthians chapter 5, verse in that area, 5, let's see, 18. and You'll see, I've often been here. It's one of my favorite verses. And so... Um, you're going to hear me preach and refer to this verse a lot over the, over the, the past few months and over the next few, know, by the grace of God, years, whatever the Lord has for us. I'll refer to this verse a lot. It's an important verse. In verse 17, he starts off by saying, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So he's saying here, he's speaking to all believers. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. Okay, So notice the context. He's speaking to to the saints. He says, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ has reconciled us to himself and gave us, plural, us, the ministry of reconciliation. We, the saints, we have this. If If you're a new creation, you actually have the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So if you're in Christ, if you've been born again, if you're a new creation, then you also are, you are part of this us that Paul's speaking about. In verse 20 he says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. We've been entrusted with the message of reconciliation, Because we have been reconciled, and therefore, you are, like me, an ambassador for Jesus Christ. Fact. Spiritual fact. This is not just for the twelve apostles. Sometimes we think that. Sometimes we think, oh, that's for Peter, James, and John, and Paul. No. If you're in Christ, if you're a new creation, you are an ambassador for Christ. And God is making his appeal through us, not just Paul, through all of us new creations. And we are imploring you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sakes, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's our message as ambassadors to the world. He knew no sin. And he became sin and died for us so that we, you, might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And that's a little summary, a very good summary, of the message that we as ambassadors are to take to the nations. And to think of that. It's quite amazing, it's a, it's a, it's a massive thing. An ambassadorship is great honor. It's great honor. And this is very shocking. Who are we? We are lost, sinful humanity in our natural state. And yet we have been born again. We are a new creation. And now we get it. It goes on in chapter 6, verse 1. Working together with him. We, working together with God. Appeal to the... He goes on to appeal. This is a wonderful honor. This is a wonderful privilege. This is a wonderful position to be an ambassador For God, speaking in the name of God. And that's what Paul is driving home here. In Ephesians chapter 6, I'm an ambassador, but he's also a unique kind of ambassador. I'm an ambassador in chains, he says in verse 20 of chapter 6 of Ephesians. I am an ambassador in chains. Paul's referring to very clearly his imprisonment. Where is he at right now? He's in Rome right now. This is the third time in the book of Ephesians that he's referred to the fact that he's a prisoner. He's under arrest. Ephesians chapter um, 3, verse 1. He says, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. I'm in prison for the sake of you Gentiles, you Ephesians, who are getting this letter right now. You're Ephesians, you're Gentiles. I'm actually in prison for your sake. I'm in prison because I'm carrying the message of the gospel to the, for the sake of the Gentiles. And that's got me in trouble. That's got me in prison. Also in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. And then he goes in to speak about, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. But he's continually referring back the saints to the awareness of the fact that he's actually in jail right now as a prisoner of the Lord for the sake of the gospel unto the Gentiles. And here he says, a prisoner in, an, excuse me, an ambassador in chains that I may declare, or that, that uh, for which I am an ambassador in chains. That is to, as he proclaims the mystery of the gospel. So, he's saying that here he's an ambassador with chains. In the ancient Near Eastern world, often ambassadors and. People of high rank in the political realm would wear certain kind of robes, certain kind of attire. One of the things that was well known is that people, dignitaries, particularly ambassadors from a foreign country, would wear like a rope or a chain or a medallion around their neck to signify their office, their rank. I'm here walking through the markets, but I'm not a normal person. I'm a guest. And I've got this medallion or this chain, this gold chain that I'm wearing to symbolize my office. And my role, my credentials, so to speak, from my king or my president or my monarch who sent me here. And that's what was a very common concept here. And Paul here, who's an ambassador of Christ and through whom God speaks, is offering his credentials as what? A chain of suffering, iron chains, shackles. That's my credentials. And you notice it's very interesting. In this whole prayer request, he does not ask to be unshackled. He doesn't pray to get out of prison. That's very interesting. It's an interesting observation. I dare doubt that any one of us who found ourselves in a, position, a prison position would not write our first letter and say, "I'm doing OK, but please pray for me to get out of here as fast as I can." We probably would. Actually, I've been in prison for a few days. For the gospel and i can honestly tell you that when i saw my wife that first evening the first thing i said was pray for me to get out of here <laughs> I'm not trying to i'm just saying that's the reality of where i found myself in jordan back in 2007 but paul is okay with where he's at he's not praying he's not praying that his shackles come off and he gets out of jail That's not his his concern. He's not a fatalist. He's not simply resigned to the fact that this is his lot in life. That's not what he's saying. No, he is well aware of the fact that he serves a sovereign God and he's 100% committed to the gospel. He's there because of the sake of the gospel. He's there for the sake of taking this gospel to the Gentiles. And if this is what it costs, he's willing to do that. He wants to do that. That's the esteem. That's the value that he holds the gospel in. And he's very concerned about that, and he's not in any way concerned about the fact that the gospel is shackled. That's a very important concept to note. He himself is shackled, but it's absolutely fine. This is in no way going to stop the gospel from going forward. No way. Never. It can't happen. In fact, in his second imprisonment, in Second Timothy, he will speak to Timothy, in Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, in his second imprisonment, because he's going to get out of this imprisonment, by the way. But he doesn't know that when he's writing uh, Ephesians chapter 6. But he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. This is in his second imprisonment. He's going to clearly state, I am in prison again, Timothy, and I'm bound with chains as a criminal again, Timothy, but you be bold, because the word of God, the gospel, will not be bound. It can't be bound. And so, although we're ambassadors, we're not, we're not like ambassadors of this world, right? The ambassadorships of this world, they drive, you know, 2022 <laughs> nice SUVs with tinted windows and armor plates and live in villas in the nicest parts of the nicest cities and capitals of the world. We're not like that. We're ambassadors for Jesus Christ, the suffering servant of God, the crucified Son of God. And as our master went, so goes his disciples. And just as you're Christ's ambassador, there's also something bound for you too. There's hard things that are sovereignly decreed, For us, in our ambassadorships, where God has sovereignly placed us and sent us. And like Paul, we have high positions, yet with chains, so to speak, in one sense, that symbolize and remind us of the fact that we're not our own. We're the servants of another. We're doing this job, having been sent out by our king. In this role, as ambassadors, we aren't free to call our own shots. Never are. Ambassadors are never free to call their own shots. In your new role, with your new life, your job is to report daily for duty. You're an ambassador-servant ambassador servant of the king of kings, and that means that you're bound to certain duties. You're called to certain tasks. You're given certain roles. You're sovereignly placed in certain relationships and appointed to certain aspects of ambassadorship. And God has placed you in these situations sovereignly. And understand this, though, for each one of us. (laughs) Very much like Esther, Queen Esther, you are here for such a time as this. You were born for such a time as this. At this time in this place, God has you sovereignly here. For her, it was a palace in Susa, Babylon. That's not what we have. But you are where God has sovereignly decreed and ordained you to be for his purposes at this time and this season with all the difficulties that you might feel are even like chains in this situation. Paul literally had on real, literal, physical chains. I'm not trying to allegorize this. He really did. But there is clearly a wordplay going on here. There's clearly a wordplay going on here. Chains can be nice, beautiful gold chains. Chains. And they can also be these kind of chains that lock your hands and your feet in. It's the same word. The same word. In fact, in the Arabic language, it's the exact same word. A beautiful gold chain and these kind of chains. is the same word. Much of the ancient Near East is like that. Maybe in your situation, you will find yourself in hard things, difficult situations. Maybe it's a sickness. I know a person who's chained, so to speak, to a bed. He's an evangelist. He traveled the world as an evangelist. God gave him great fruit in Africa and in Europe as an evangelist. And now for over 15 years, he's literally been almost daily bound into a bed. But guess what? That guy is sovereignly a phenomenal ambassador to doctors and nurses like you can't believe. Again, you don't get to call the shots. But those doctors and nurses are hearing the gospel through that evangelist, all over the east coast of America. Doctors and nurses are hearing the gospel from that from that evangelist who's bound in his bed and can't get out of his bed. And there's a, th- I mean, there's we can go on. There's a thousand op- options this could be. Maybe something that's chaining a difficult situation for you is, is your own wayward son or daughter. Again, of any age, maybe a little wayward one, maybe a teenage wayward one, prodigal son. Maybe your chain is actually something like a a wedding ring or a difficult relationship that you find yourself in that you're needing grace from God daily to be an ambassador for Christ Jesus in that situation. Maybe it's an unwanted job. Maybe it's an unwanted pregnancy. Maybe it's an unwanted neighborhood. Anything that you find yourself not at ease with. God has sovereignly placed you there for whatever purposes at this point and in this time and in this season. And there it is. You're bound somehow in God's wisdom and God's sovereignty. And in that situation, you have a, a mission as an ambassador. And you may be saying to yourself, well, they're not listening to me. The doctors and nurses aren't seeming to respond. That's okay. You're still an ambassador. Press on. You're still a representative. Maybe you might say, well, I'm tired and I don't think I can keep going on in this situation. This ambassadorship with these kind of chains are actually very difficult for me. But That's okay. It's your job. Look to the Lord for strength. You might say it's been a very long time. I've been an ambassador with these particular change in this situation. Uh, it's been a long time, not one or two years. It's been longer than that. That's okay. You've been sent out by your king, and you don't go home until he's called you back home. The very fact that I find myself even standing right here right now is, is sometimes shocking to me. Just a few months ago, I was in the Middle East, in a small little cinder block room or in an Arab Syrian refugees tent sharing the gospel in Arabic in, a, in an Islamic context. It's a very, but I'm very happy to be here, by the way. <laughs> I'm happy to be here because in God's good sovereignty, he has done this. He does what he, what he chooses and he sends where he sends and he's the Lord of his harvest and he knows how to send and where to send his ambassadors and he knows exactly which chains to put on his ambassadors for his glory. And so Paul is an ambassador, a very high position, a very a great position of honor that he can hardly imagine. He's an ambassador in chains. And that brings us to the second matter we need to look at, his petition. So that's his position. He's an ambassador in chains. But his, peti- his petition is that In verse 19, he says, and pray also for me, or pray on my behalf, as the New American Standard says. Pray on my behalf. It's about the seventh or the eighth, maybe the ninth time in the epistles that the Apostle Paul asks for prayer. And that fact alone is worth noting. Here's the great Apostle Paul, the great church planter, and in almost every single church, in almost every single epistle, he asks the believers to please pray for him. And he mentions a need. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, he says, You also must help us by prayer. To the Philippian church, he says, I know that through your prayers and through the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. First, uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. And to the Thessalonian church in 2 Thessalonians 3, 1, he says, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. And that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. There's various things that he prays for, but generally speaking, he prays for the word of God to prosper. That's his main thing, for the word of God to prosper. Put yourself in Paul's shoes, or his sandals, or whatever. (laughs) Put yourself in Paul's situation. Where's he at? We said he's in prison. What's the next thing coming up? He's a number of years into this prison situation that started way back in Jerusalem when he went into the temple, and the Jews arrested him. And then he almost died there. He was beaten there, and uh, the Romans had to rescue him, and they took him to Caesarea. He spent, I think, two years in Caesarea. Then he was shipped to Rome, and that was all kinds of things written in the book of Acts. He was in a shipwreck. He almost died in the shipwreck. And now he's in Rome awaiting what? To go before the Roman Supreme Court of the Roman Empire. Very possibly Nero himself. We don't know if he went before Nero, but he's going to go to a very high court in Rome. He's appealed to Caesar. To Caesar he will go. And what's the result of that? If his case does not work out well, it's not like in America he's just going to have to pay a fine and pay for the, for the uh, prosecutor lawyer fees. He will probably die. That's where he finds himself. I'm an ambassador in chains. I'm awaiting a court hearing. And if it doesn't go well, I'm going to be killed, beheaded. That's the situation he finds himself in. You want to, you want to ask for prayer? <laughs> this is his prayer request. That's where he finds himself in. But he also sees not only the gravity of this situation, but he sees the opportunity of this situation. The opportunity. I am going to soon be before the Supreme Court of the Empire, the world, lifting up Jesus Christ and himself crucified in the gospel. What an opportunity I have. What an opportunity I have. Brothers, pray for me. Pray for me pray for clarity, pray for boldness. What an opportunity. And Paul knows that. So not only is he um, aware of the gravity of the situation, but he sees the importance of it and the great opportunity. And that actually leads him to request humbly for prayer in prayer that he could This could very well lead to his death. We already referred to that. But Paul's desire is that he could take this opportunity and use it for the further expansion of the gospel for the glory of God. And he also summarizes his heart's desire as a missionary, really, in these these basic petitions. And the first petition he asks for is, very simply, that words be given to me. Words be given to me. Logos, the Greek word. You know Greek the Greek word Logos. <laughs> In the beginning was the Logos. right? And the Logos was with God and the Logos was God. This is the big word. A big Greek word. Divine utterance. That's what it literally means. Pray for me that divine utterance words would be given to me is what he's saying. Pray for me. Pray for me that I have words. Mr. Apostle Paul. Mr. Author Theologian of the whole New Testament. I need words. Because on my own strength, I cannot do it. I need God's words. I need the Lord's help. I need the Spirit of God. I can talk. Yeah, I can talk. But unless the Lord gives me his words, it won't avail. Jesus spoke a number of times to this matter. In reference to the future, to the disciples, he would say in Luke chapter 21, verse 12 through 15, Jesus would say, but before all this happens, before they lay their hands on you and persecute you, we speaking of the, of the destruction of Jerusalem, and I think also the end of the world as well, and the difficult times ahead. Before all these things happen, before they persecute you, before they, they will deliver you up to synagogues and to prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake, this is prophetic here of Christ. And they and this will be your opportunity to bear witness. That's what Paul's thinking about. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom. I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. I will give you words, NIV says. I will give you utterances, NASB says. I will give you a mouth and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. And two other different occasions, Christ said the same basic thing to his disciples. You're going to need the Holy Spirit to help you speak and share the gospel. Don't depend upon your own wisdom, your own strength, your own intellect, your own reasoning, There's a place for those things, but ultimately, you need the Holy Spirit. Paul prays for words, words to be given to me, words for the moment. Have you ever been in a situation, in an opportunity to share the gospel or some great need, and you sense an intense need to have the right words? And you pray, Lord, give me the right words. Lord, I don't know what to say in this situation. Please help me communicate. It doesn't mean, by the way, when you ask for this help, that you will so- suddenly become very eloquent and come across as smart or intelligent or slick or even well spoken. You might end up just fumbling and mumbling. But that's okay. God can use that. He absolutely will use that. In fact, the Apostle Paul, by the way, do you know that in recorded scripture, the Apostle Paul was considered to be a very poor speaker? It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, For some say, and Paul, by the way, is writing this, about what some say about him. And some say, his letters are weighty and forceful, but in his person, he is unimpressive, and his speaking amounts to nothing. Hmm. Took a lot of humility for Paul to write that about himself. And then in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 6, Paul says, Paul even concedes, Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I'm not so in knowledge. So it doesn't mean that you're going to be suddenly eloquent. And I think as a missionary, as whenever you learn a second language, when you go to learn Urdu or Hindi or that primitive language in the Amazon jungle, one of the things that you will, one of the hardest things for missionaries, one of the things that takes missionaries off the field is the the absolute humility to learn a second language. Many missionaries have got their seminary degree. And they go to Chad to an illiterate people group, and they, not that Chad, (laughs) they they go to the country Chad. (laughs) They go to the, not to Chad, they go to the country Chad, and they can't even say, How are you? Can I have some water? And you feel like a two year old baby. And it's quite humbling. It's quite humbling. Quite humbling. Here you are, educated. You got your master's degree and you can't even say, can I have some water? Let alone, Jesus loves you and died for your sins. It's hard. It also doesn't mean that when you share these truths and when the Lord uses you, that suddenly everybody will be convinced and thousands will get saved whenever you talk. It doesn't mean that at all. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, I think it is, Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, there's that passage i go to every so often he says thanks be to god in verse 14 of chapter 2 thanks be to god who in christ always leads us in triumphal procession there's the triumph right and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere for we are the aroma of christ to god among those who are being saved so when we go to share the gospel We are like the aroma of Christ to God, especially amongst those who are being saved. And, he goes on, among those who are perishing, even those who are going to hell. To the one, we're a fragrance from death to death. And to the other, we're a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? When you share the truth of God, when you share the gospel, guess what? Some will accept and believe And some will reject and deny Christ and deny you. And that was another thing as a missionary in the 34 years when I was a missionary in the Middle East. One of the hardest things was getting close to people, getting into their lives, getting into their families, getting into their relationships, loving them in the name of Jesus. And then as the gospel comes closer and closer and closer and the call of Christ becomes more and more real, I don't become an aroma of life unto life to those ones. I become an aroma of death unto death and they can't stand to be around me anymore. That happens. And there's varying degrees of reaction to that. But again, when the Lord anoints you and uses you and gives you words, it does not mean that you will be eloquent. It does not mean that you're going to have phenomenal success in the worldly sense. Maybe you will. Maybe you will see hundreds and thousands. Maybe you'll see only one come to Christ. That's for him to sovereignly determine. It also does not mean that you will even be actually aware of the fact other than by faith, that God is using your words. I'm convinced of that. I'm convinced of that. One of the things that encourages my heart is not that I know so many Muslims have come to Christ, X, Y, Z, number, or something like that, but that I know the promise of God that where he sent me and the opportunities that he gave and the opportunities he gives you to share the gospel, God will use those in their lives. And maybe it's a conversation you have with one person at Starbucks one time in one situation, never see the person again. You do not know what God will do with that. You don't know. And we all know of stories. I was trying to find an example of a particular story, I couldn't find one. But we know of stories of when you shared with somebody, or somebody shared with somebody, and 10 or 15, 20 years later, they come back and say, you remember when you said, or that person said this 20 some years ago, and it never left me, and I left and I got saved that night. It happens all the time. But that's for the Lord to know. It's sufficient for us to know his promises are true, yes, and amen. Right, Like the promise of Isaiah 55, 11, where it says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. Right, He's going to give you a mouth. But here in Isaiah, it says it's like the word that goes out of my mouth It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it out. God will accomplish his purposes. It will succeed in the reason for which God sent out that word through his mouth or through the mouth of his servant or through the mouth of his ambassador. It will accomplish all the purposes for which it was sent out. I think of Spurgeon. I love Spurgeon's testimony. Who knows Spurgeon's testimony, how he got saved? It's a very famous story. Spurgeon writes about it himself in his autobiography. He says there was a day in London when he was about 16 or 17, I forget the actual age. It had snowed heavily, very heavy snow. Actually, it wasn't London. It was was where he grew up at, outside of London. And he went out that morning to go to church. But the snows had come. And he says... In his autobiography, the minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. And at last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or a tailor or something of that sort, you can hear his disdain in his description, went up into the pulpit to preach. And this was called a primitive Methodist church. This was not even, this was, he just walked, he stumbled into it because he couldn't go to the church he wanted to because of the snow. And the church he stumbled into, the pastor who was there, wasn't even there. And he stumbled up in the pulpit to preach. And now it is well that preachers should be instructed, he said. But this man was really stupid. <laughs> That's what he said. That's his biography. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, Isaiah 45, 22. He did not even pronounce the words rightly. But that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do (laughs) and said, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and live. And I saw at once the way of salvation. That's Spurgeon's testimony. Some nobody-nothing shoemaker, second-string preacher, Stands up and says, look, look, look. And Spurgeon says, I saw once the way of salvation. That's how God does it. Do you think that God gave that shoemaker, that illiterate shoemaker, words? He did. Then also he says, at the opening of my mouth, at the opening of my mouth, give me words. He says, that may be given to me in the opening of my mouth. The phrase the opening of my mouth is used in the New Testament and in the Bible to, to declare very important truths, right? When Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mountain in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, it says, And he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened up his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. It's not like it, the big thing is that Jesus opened up his mouth and that was the big thing to record. This is a way of describing a very important thing is coming now. Christ opens his mouth and he begins to teach the Sermon on the Mount. Or in Acts chapter 8, when Philip meets the Ethiopian eunuch there on the road to Gaza. And he meets him there and and the Ethiopian eunuch is reading Isaiah 53. And Philip, it says, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him all the good news about Jesus. He opens his mouth and begins to speak. And that's what's going on here. We see this also in the the life of Stephen. Acts chapter 6, right? Stephen, as soon as he becomes a deacon, as soon as they appoint Stephen as a deacon, what happens? In Acts chapter 6, verse 10, we hear that Stephen is beginning to share and have an impact in Jerusalem. In verse 10 it says, But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Stephen. Obviously, Stephen knew the scriptures, and obviously the Spirit of God helped him in a very powerful way. And that whole, that whole event, really, it's almost a chapter and a half of the book of Acts, is Stephen sharing people being upset at his words because they can't argue with his words, a crowd coming, they grab him, they take him to a, to a trial immediately, and the next thing you know, he's being stoned to death. It all happened quickly, so very quickly. But you have all of Acts chapter 7, the whole book of chapter. We did one have the time, but if you turn there, it's a very large section of Scripture. And that's Stephen just sharing the gospel with the Pharisees spontaneously. He knew the word of God. There's no doubt about that. He clearly knew the word of God, but he did not have time to prepare that sermon. <laughs> that came, and obviously, very clearly, it came with the help of the Holy Spirit as he spoke. First Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, some very heavy words. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's very grace, whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Very important concepts. Even now, even now as I'm sharing and opening up this word to you, I'm asking God to give me words and share in a powerful way for your good, for your growth, for your encouragement, that God would accomplish his purposes in all of your lives. That's what I pray, even in the situation. Even now, as we share these words, God is at work. I believe that. God is at work in lives. <clears throat> may it be a young, be it old. be it male, be it female. God works in his time and his ways through the words spoken. And then the second thing Paul prays for is boldness. He asks for words, and then he asks for boldness. They're tied very closely together, right? One, he's praying for clarity. And the next one, he's praying for courage. I, don't, I not only need words, I actually need boldness to do it. Boldness to share. Boldness to proclaim. This word boldness is a unique word. Paul, uh, uh, John Stott says of this word, it's used two times, by the way, in text here. Once as a, one is a noun in verse 19 and, and also as a verb in verse 20, this boldness that he requests. It was originally used, John Stott says of this word, it was originally used to refer to the democratic freedom of speech in the ancient Greco-Roman world it Was enjoyed by Greek, that was enjoyed by Greek citizens. And then it came to mean outspokenness or frankness or plainness of speech that, can, that conceals nothing and passes over nothing. It's used in the New Testament to speak of something plainly or openly or boldly. So like Jesus, when he's being arrested in John chapter 18, verse 19, when he's before the high priest, the high priest questions him and says, uh, question Jesus about his disciples. Excuse me, the high priest, in, uh, this is in John eighteen nineteen. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple. Where all the Jews came together, I have said nothing in secret. So Jesus is saying, I've been plain. I've been open. I've been bold before everybody. You all know what I've said. There's nothing, for There's nothing new to figure out, high priest. Again, remember where Paul is. Remember what's coming up, this trial, this court. It, it, he, he, is, he is in a situation that clearly would qualify as, as an evil day for which we're to take on the awful armor of God so that we can withstand in the evil day. That's where Paul finds himself in this situation. He's clearly in a difficult place like that. It may result in his death. We've already pointed that out. And he recognizes his need for boldness. And again, when you are in situations that are difficult throughout much of the world, to stand up for Jesus is actually quite a costly thing. Quite a costly thing. This is the day I got a, 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 a message, a WhatsApp message from, one, from the deacon that we left behind in Tyre, our Stephen, so to speak. A deacon, his name is Samir. He came to faith about four years ago in the Lord. And he told me of a very difficult situation. He said, I was out working for a guy I'd worked on. It was Friday, my fifth day. I finished the week working for this man. And by the way, this guy's very poor. He brings home the money from the day or from the week, he got paid weekly, and that's what his family eats on the next week. He lives off of a day-to-day existence, so to speak, making more than no more than six to seven dollars a day for his whole family of what? Five, six kids now. At the very end of the week, he talked to the guy who hired him, I think, to haul bricks up and down to the second or third floor of a building. And the whole week. And he shared, he goes. I'd like to share something with you. And he shared with him the gospel with this Muslim employer who hired him for the week. And the man, after listening to him for a while, says, do you believe all these things? And Samir said, yes. Yes, I believe these things. This is what God has done in my life. The man turned immediately, began to curse and swear at him, throw things at him, ran him off his property, actually began to physically assault him. Ran him off his property and said, don't come back and you're not getting paid a penny for the whole, work's, for the whole week's worth. He has no recourse. There's no courts. There's no courts. There's no one to go to. If he went to anyone, he'd be actually persecuted further for why he shared those words of the gospel. And I, I'm just reminded by that. You know? That is the cost of following Christ. Jesus said, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. When you, even we in America, now, now it's actually come to the place in America that if you stand up for Christ, you might actually be fired from your jobs. Really, In fact, I know people who've lost their jobs because of standing up for Jesus in the last two years in America. And that really wasn't a pretty prominent thing. But as our society, as we are seeing adrift, barring the intervention of God, which we're asking for, by the way, and we're praying for, for, for revival. Following Christ may cost you your life someday. I don't, think that's over, that's, I don't think that's an overstatement. We look at the trajectory of where our society has gone so rapidly, so fast. Evil men go from bad to worse. Paul says, pray for us that the gospel go forward. And that we protected, be protected from evil men and wicked men. For not all have faith. That's where you'll find ourselves in sometimes. There are times when the Apostle Paul, even though he was known for his boldness, even though he was known for taking risks for the gospel, there were times when even he needed to be encouraged in boldness. In Acts chapter 23, after being arrested, after being beaten by the crowds in Jerusalem, after being slapped in the face in a public manner, which was very humiliating, he goes home, and that night, the following night, actually, the following night, the Lord appeared to him and said, Acts 23, verse 11, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. You're going to go to Rome. Take courage, Paul. The Lord God does not just waste words. He said, take courage, courage Paul, because Paul needed to be encouraged. Take courage, Paul. You've testified for me in Jerusalem. You're going to testify for me in Rome. Hang in there, Paul. And so why this great need for words? Why this great need for words and open mouth given and all this boldness? Because that, it's it's the gospel we're dealing with. It's the gospel that we're dealing with. That's what he's saying here. Pray for me that I may be given words. Words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. The only hope for mankind, the only salvation for mankind, the gospel. If they don't receive it as life unto life, it will be unto them as death unto death. And we don't want that. Paul doesn't want that for them. Paul doesn't want that for the Gentiles. I didn't want that for my Muslim friends. You don't want it for your children. You don't want that. For the loved ones in your life. You want it to be for life unto life. You want this gospel to go forward and penetrate and work in their lives. And Paul is saying this is very important. It's for the mystery, for the sake of the mystery of the gospel, that I am doing this. He could have said just for the sake of the gospel, but he throws in the word mystery there. And that takes us to a big study we could go to in the various aspects of the mystery of the gospel. But suffice it to say, he's not asking for more revelation. He's got plenty of revelation. He's not saying that the gospel is somehow mysterious or unclear. He's actually taught the gospel to the Ephesians for three years straight in Ephesus. And actually, the first three chapters of this book of Ephesians... Are a clear representation of the gospel. So it's not like there's some question about as to what it is. But he's saying that there is a great need for God to do a divine work in the opening up the hearts of the lost to receive and understand the gospel. He's shown them already in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, that we are sinners. Ephesians chapter 2. We're sinners, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. spiritually dead mankind is. But in verse four he says, "But God, that's that very famous phrase, "Even though we're dead spiritually in our sins, and our tra- transgressions and violators of God's law who, des- who, who justly deserve the wrath of God because of our sin, but God, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. He's been teaching this. They all know that they've been saved by grace through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't deserve it. we're, We're sinners in our natural state deserving eternal punishment, eternal damnation. But... Christ has come. And he would say in chapter 2, verse 13, he reminds them, but now in Christ Jesus, you ones who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You Gentiles, you were far from the kingdom. You were far from Jesus. You were far from the law of God. But you've been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died for your sins. And that blood has purchased for himself a people. You didn't come near. You were brought near by the blood of the Lamb. You didn't find the shepherd. The shepherd found you. You were lost. You were in the wilderness. The shepherd found you. You didn't find the shepherd. You didn't open your eyes. You were blinded. Jesus opened your eyes to see. And that's what he's speaking about. He's thinking of someone like Lydia in Acts chapter 16 when it says, and you know, Paul is sharing the gospel with Lydia, and it says, And the Lord opened up her heart to listen and believe the things that was spoken of by Paul. And Jesus himself would say that no one can come to, 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 to Christ unless the Father draws him. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And everyone who has heard and learned or has been drawn from the Father will come to Christ. So we can share these things. You can share the gospel And I know as an evangelist and sharing the gospel with Muslims for many, many years, you can share and they'll listen and they'll respond and they'll look at you. But sometimes it's like there's nobody in the house. There's no spiritual lights on anywhere there. And that's when you're praying, oh, Lord, please take these words and in your way, apply them to his or her heart. Open up his mind. Open up his eyes that they may see and understand and believe these things. And that's why Paul's saying, I want to be an effective proclaimer and declarer of the mystery of the gospel. Of the mystery of the gospel. But I don't want to to close this or wrap up this time here without noting one very last, one very final thing, very important thing, which is that God does answer prayer. Paul is actually asking for prayer, he's requesting prayer, but it needs to be noted that God does answer prayer. I don't know about your Bible, but my Bible, the next page is Philippians. And if you turn to Philippians chapter one, so we're in Ephesians chapter six, on the same page, the next page over is Philippians chapter one. And Philippians and Ephesians were written about the same time, probably Philippians a little after Ephesians, just a little bit after, maybe a couple months, maybe six months after Ephesians, also written from Rome. And if you look there in verse 12, we get a little update of Paul's situation in prison. He says in verse 12 of Philippians chapter one, I want you all, I want you, excuse me, I want you to know brothers that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ and most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. God's answering his prayer request. He's saying it's all known throughout the whole imperial guard here in Rome that I'm here for Christ. And all the other Christians around have heard what's happening to me. And they're actually becoming more bold. They're becoming bold. They're beginning to witness. We even know that Onesimus will come to faith during this time while Paul's there in Rome. Paul's saying, I want you to know what's happened to me. What's happened to me? The difficult situation I find myself in that's happened to me, it's all for the glory of God. It has served to advance the gospel. It's happening. And God, who's able to do abundantly more than we ask or think, that's what he's doing here. Not only is Paul being effective in his witness, and he's still alive, but the other believers are also becoming more bold in their proclamation of the gospel. But we're not done yet. There's a, still another reference in Acts chapter 28. Turn to the very last words of the book of Acts. Acts 28, we get in a final snapshot. Well, a final snapshot because now he's in Rome. Acts 28. We read these words. We, he's arrived in Rome. Verse seventeen. After three days, he called together the local leaders and the brothers. He shares with them. He shares about his hope. He shares the gospel. Verse twenty-eight. Let's say chapter twenty-eight. Um, we're told in verse twenty-four that some were convinced about what he said; others disbelieved. And then he gives a statement. And therefore, uh, of of the fact that God is working amongst the Gentiles, not just the Jews. Verse 28, he says there of chapter 28, therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. Verse 30 at the very last verse there. And he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And by the way, we're told in verse uh, 16 that he has a soldier who's guarding him all the time. So it's like a house arrest that he finds himself in, at least in this particular place. He is able, he's able to have visitors come to him, but he can't go to other people. He's bound there. He's got a soldier there. It's part of the Praetorium Imperial Guard. And he says he was able to preach with all boldness and without hindrance, exactly what he was asking for in Ephesians chapter six. And then the last verse is, Second Timothy chapter four, verse 16, when Paul actually says, he's actually been delivered from that. He says, "At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth." So he was delivered. He didn't die during that first imprisonment. God answered his prayer. God rescued him. God honored him. All the Gentiles were able to hear. God answered his prayer. So just in summary, as I was thinking of how to wrap this up, brothers, don't be afraid to ask for prayer. The Apostle Paul is asking for prayer. It's a sign of his humility and his need. He asked for prayer. Paul did this many times. Are you praying one for another? That's a little application from last week, but I'm just going to bring it over to this week. We're told to pray one for another. Pray for all the saints. Paul's humbly given himself as an example of this need. Pray. Pray for me. I'll say that again as well. Pray for me. I'm going to say it two times in a row, two Sundays in a row. Please pray for me. Pray also for the exact same reasons that Paul prayed. You need them. Pray because you have the same high calling as an ambassador. Chains and all circumstances and all the things that happened to me he would say god has things that will happen to you and in all of it it's the same goal that the gospel be made known pray because you like the apostle paul are weak and needy you're weak and needy like the apostle paul you need words pray for words pray for one another for words you need boldness with the persons, the peoples that God has placed you in. And also, pray because our God does answer prayer. It's right here in this whole little story of Ephesians, chapter 6. Pray for me that words be given to me, that I might boldly proclaim the gospel, the mystery of the gospel. God answered that prayer. So these are the reasons for us to continue on in prayer. Again, as we, ask, as, we, as we ask in the Lord to form us and make us and mold us into the church of his, his desire, we've talked a lot about the fact that we are to be growing as a people who get to know the word of God more and more, but also a people who are a people of prayer more and more. Father God, we thank you so much for this chance. We thank you for this word. We thank you for this example of the Apostle Paul and how he has... Through this request, and his request that he's mentioned here, you teach us, um, and you have taught your church throughout the centuries. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who hears our concerns, our needs. You desire to hear from us. And Lord, we thank you that you are a God who does answer prayer, and you will accomplish all things that bring glory to your name. And so, Lord, even now, we commit this time to you, and the words have been spoken For the sake of the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.